Imagine getting a call late at night from a loved one. You're not expecting the call. Pick up the phone. What's the matter? What's happening? Is, is everyone okay? And your loved one explains, we're okay. But something terrible has happened. You got that call before? We're okay. Everything was fine. Everything was going just fine. And then something terrible has happened. That's the state of awareness that we need to bring when we look at Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 4. Something, something terrible has gone wrong in the fall from paradise. And that's what we're looking at this morning. You see, to fully understand the gospel of Jesus, we know the word gospel means good news. To, to fully get and understand that the good news, you have to first know the bad news. Someone was I was joking with someone before, this is going to be a bad sermon. <laughs> Hopefully not. But we have to have that bad news first. For, for the gospel to be really good, it has to be compared with, with whatever is bad. Are you following me? So if I go to the doctor for, for a checkup and, and, and I come out and she says, good news, Pete, according to our uh, tests and scans and everything, you are still six feet and a half tall. Well, so what? I, I knew that going in, right? Is that good news? But if I felt a lump... And I schedule that appointment, and they say, well, we'll see you in about three weeks. I'm thinking, I don't know if I have three weeks. And I'm waiting in the waiting room for the doctor to come back. And she comes in, and she says, Pete, I have good news. The results are negative. <gasps> see what I'm saying? So for us to understand the good news of the gospel, the, the, the hope of the gospel, we, we have to look at the bad. And it's right here in the very first pages of the book of Genesis, the gospel in the beginning. So in the same way of understanding Jesus and his title of Savior, and that's a little hint of, of the good news, isn't it? Right? He's a Savior we have to understand, we have to look at the bad, and, and chapters 4 and 5 that we'll cover this morning are a whole lot of bad. I mean, it's, it's a whole lot of bad news, okay? But let's back up to chapters 1 and 2 when everything was good, right? The Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons in perfect harmony, and God creates the canvas of the cosmos. Genesis chapter 1. And then Genesis chapter 2. We see God's special favor on human beings, just this overflowing of, of grace. And we begin to, to pick up that the design of the planet was such that humankind could flourish. And, and, and there's a paradise that man and woman are placed in to be in love with one another, in love with God, in fellowship with God, and to flourish and to live in the very design of the garden where there's a tree of life and the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do we see there? We see that, that obeying God, obedience to God's word, taking God at his word, trusting God, 
leads to joy and life. Right there in the first pages of Scripture, it's all good. In fact, it's perfect. And then it all comes undone. So I'm going to summarize a bit of this before we actually look at the text. The the Bible says that a crafty serpent, a, a sneaky snake, if you will, sows seeds of doubt just by asking a question to Eve. Did God really say you must not eat fruit from any tree in the garden? The serpent says to Eve. Now, mind you, as as we look at this, we're in Genesis chapter 3. This is a conversation we're we're listening in uh, between the serpent and Eve. Where is Adam? Verse 6 says he's there with Eve. Apparently, he's mute. He cannot speak. Apparently, he's just passively. I don't know what he's doing. But he's just listening at this point. Eve says back to the serpent, verse 6. So, oh, that's, no, verse, verse 2 and then into 3. She says, no, 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 no. We may eat fruit from the trees, verse 3, but we must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. And God said we can't touch it or we will die. And the question, is that what God said? Not, not exactly. Not exactly. What, what's Eve doing here? What, what are some problematic things that Eve is, Eve's doing here? Well, remember, for starters, she's talking to a talking snake. That should have clued her in that something wasn't quite right, right? But, but, but more to the point, first she, she diminishes God's word. Look at there. She diminishes God's word. God said, eat from any tree, any tree but one. But she says, God said we may eat the fruit. And she diminishes. She takes out that how, how wonderful it was that all the trees were, were, were good. And she just kind of diminishes. She, she limits God's word. She limits, in a sense, her testimony. Then she, she adds to God's word. Did God say uh, not to touch it? No, she, she, she's just embellishing here. He said, don't eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. He didn't say anything about touching. She's just, she's now adding to God's word. So she's embellishing. Have you ever heard anyone embellish their story? You ever, you've ever heard that? No, right? <laughs> All right, yeah. Fish stories, that's right. The fish was, right? So she diminishes, she adds, and then what does she do? She sort of softens God, God's word. This is a little, this is a little nuance. Maybe I'm being a little picky, but it says... God said uh, to them, you would certainly die if you eat from that fruit. And she says, or else we'll die. Maybe that's, that's just nitpicky, but, but here are examples of, of how she's diminishing and adding and softening God's word. And Now notice what the serpent does. He's asking these questions, but notice something. If you have your Bibles open, he does not invoke the covenant name of God. He does not... Dare speak Yahweh, the covenant name, capital letters, L-O-R-D. It's very sneaky that way, right? He's already in deep trouble. He knows not to do that. That's just an interesting input. But the snake does say this, completely countering to the Lord. You won't die. You won't die. Why? Because God knows if you eat the forbidden fruit, and maybe... If, if he had arms, he'd say forbidden fruit, those little air, air uh, like quote marks, right? Your eyes will be opened. 
God knows you'll be like God. If you eat this fruit, you'll know good from evil. God's holding something back from you. Seriously, Adam, will you please speak up? I mean, your wife is being lied to. Everything's at stake. It's sort of like, just imagine with me for a moment. You're in the kitchen, barefoot, and that giant butcher knife is sliding off the edge of the counter. And just in slow motion, it's heading right for your toes. <laughs> it just kind of freaks me out just of imagining that. Well, that's what's happening here. No, you want to scream at the, at the a movie theater. No, don't go in there. So the text says, Eve sees the fruit. It's pleasing to the eye. It's delightful. And it's delicious. Honeycrisp, I don't know what it is. Delicious. God's word is diminished, added to, and softened. She takes and eats and offers it to Adam. And they don't die. But their eyes are open. And instantly, the fall from grace, the shalom peace, the perfect rhythm of life is terribly and irreversibly at this point changed broken and what's the result they know that they are naked and they are ashamed so they take fig leaves don't they and they they try to cover up eve listened to the serpent adam listened to eve no one's listening to god their innocence is lost. And what do we see coming up soon? The blame game. The oldest game in all of creation. The blame game. Just point that finger at someone else. Now you better stay seated for, for this one because I don't want you to fall over. We're, I'm going to read God's word. Just stay in your seats, okay? I don't want to have a, a, a 911 moment here. Genesis chapter 3, 8 to 13. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. Really? Sin makes you do stupid things. <laughs> Let's hide. Can you see me? <laughs> yeah. Verse 9, the Lord God called to the man. And, and this is just utterly heart, heartbreaking. Where are you? Do you know where he is? Where are you? Just imagine the profound implications of that question. Verse 10, Adam answered, I, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid from you. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now here comes the blame game, verse 12. Man said, the woman you put here with me, Where's the po finger pointing? To the Lord, right? The woman you put here with me, 
she gave me some fruit from the tree. And, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, uh, the serpent deceived me. And I ate it. Boom. Crash. God curses and condemns. A, a curse on the snake to eat dust. And then the consequences for both Woman and man for their disobedience, pain and childbirth, disorder in their relationship, toil added to their work. And yet, and yet there is a glimmer of hope. Verse 15, we looked at this a few uh, number of weeks ago. The, the first mention of good news, an announcement of, of gospel, a prophecy that, that one day a distant descendant of Eve will crush the serpent. And then you have to go to the New Testament to see and to look back to see, ah, this is, the, this is Satan, this is the Satan, this is the accuser that she had this encounter with, that Adam had this encounter with. That one day the Lord God says, he will be crushed, and yet Satan will bruise his heel, will take a bite out of his heel, her descendant. And that descendant we see in the New Testament is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. We see the whole lineage, the whole uh, his whole family line all the way back to the beginning. So there's really bad news, and there are real consequences, but there is also hope, even in the judgment of the fall, that God is faithful. The first people that would hear this testimony, as children of Israel out wandering, is, is God really going to lead us to a, to a promised land? They could read this recorded history and say, yes, God, God is faithful. How is he faithful? Where is their hope? Well, for starters, God sent them out of paradise, but, but he did not utterly destroy the first couple. That's, gra that's grace, friends. That's grace. Oh, they, he got, they got kicked out of paradise for one little infraction. Before the holy, transcendent God. That's a pretty good outcome. There's hope. And Adam names Eve, gives her this name of, of Eve. It means life giver. There, there, there's hope there. Even Adam is, is hopeful. And verse 21, it says, The Lord God made animal skin garments. So they wouldn't have to walk around in, in fig leaves for much longer. That meant that there had to be an animal sacrifice. And many theologians see a parallel here with the system of, of animal sacrifice for, for atoning of sin that, that the Lord God gave to Moses and, and to Israel. They see that, that parallel, that there is hope. And that if you know your Bible, if you've, you've read your Bible, you know that the, that the death of Christ, the, the crucifixion of Jesus was, Scripture teaches, the atoning sacrifice for all of our Sin, we see that. We'll see that throughout our study. In Genesis, the seeds of hope, the beginnings of good news. So yes, God allows consequences to sin, and that's really bad because it is, but there are signs of hope that God still loves his people very much. Why? Why does God love still? I mean, is there anything noble in what Adam and Eve did here? Anything worthy of, of praise? Like, well, they're, 
you know the, the new couple down the street? They're so nice. No. Do they deserve a second chance? They, they don't even apologize. And yet God loves. Adam only confesses that he's afraid. At least he's being honest. And he's hiding from the Lord, and yet God still loves. Are, are you hiding something from God right now? Oh, really? Or are you hiding in, in plain sight before God right now? Trying to cover up. God sees you this mo morning. God knows you and he loves you. Will you turn to God? Or do you want to just keep playing the blame game? Say, well, what I do in the privacy of my own, nobody's going to pass it. We need to take responsibility for our own actions. Too often Christians focus solely on the big sins. Now I'm doing it. In, in other people's lives. We focus on the big sins out in our culture. Yet we don't focus on the sin in our own life. I'm talking about sin that we try to ignore, we try to excuse away, we try to say, well, at least I'm better than most Sins like anger and envy, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, judgmentalism. See, when the first disciples heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard say, said, but I say to you, he upped the ante, didn't he? Got a little personal, got a little uncomfortable. The bad news of the fall affects us all. There are consequences and each of us, the Bible says, will have to give an account for our rebellion. Romans 8, 22, it says this. It says, the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Believe it or not, I don't personally know what that kind of pain's like. I just never will. But that, that visual, what, what Paul gives to the church, of that, that hope, but that pain, he says all of creation is feeling this. It's incalculable, but it pales by comparison to the human toll since the fall of division, of darkness, and our worst enemy, death. In the first pages of Scripture, God teaches us about the fall because the gospel would be nonsensical if we didn't understand how holy God is, how good creation is, how special humanity is, how well-defined our design to live correctly is, and how bad sin is, how bad it is to miss the mark, how bad it is to be out of step with God so much so that you're just walking away from the Lord. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the gift, is, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you don't understand 
what the first pages of Scripture tell you about the God who created you, how He designed you, what He's called you to, how far we've fallen, and the, the lengths that He's gone to, to to win us back. You'll never understand the gospel. It'll just be a joke. The, the downward spiral of the fall continues in chapter 4. Uh, we have the first murder in chapter 4. Thank you for that. Premeditated murder. Cain killing his little brother Abel. Why? Because he's jealous and because he idolizes Abel. Strange mix of the two. You see, they both bring uh, gifts to the Lord. Abel gives his best. He gives his very best to the Lord. Cain, not so much. We read in chapter 4 how the Lord God, he warns Cain, he gives him an out, and yet he does it anyway, premeditate, he calls his brother out, let's go out to the field, and he kills him, and his blood fills the ground. And the Lord God says, where is your brother? Cain says, I don't know. And my, bro my brother's keeper. And the blame continues. Again, there are, there are consequences for Cain, and yet God offers hope. He, he protects him. Cain builds the first city, but we see as we continue on, the generations keep spiraling down. One of his descendants, uh, Lamech, uh, this guy, oh, he's a real winner. The first polygamist in the Bible. Oh, yeah, this, this is a real winner. He's so violent and bloodthirsty, he says, I will pay back any offense with violence. And yet, again, chapter 4 ends with a word of hope. Adam and Eve have another son that they named Seth. Humankind will continue. The central lie of Satan to all God's children comes in the form of a question. Did God really say? That, that's the lie. Did God really say, as in, did God really say, live for Jesus? Seems a little radical, doesn't it? You've got responsibilities, priorities. You've got yours to take care of. Did God really say he, he'd always be there for you? Look at the mess that you're in. Look at what you've done in your life. Is he not there for you? God's not there. Where's God? What's implied there is the, the evil one saying, you're hopeless. You're a mess. Did God really say he'd bail you out of this one? See, the lie embedded in the devil's questions is that God can't be trusted, that you're on your own, that the darkness will keep closing in, and you've got to find the escape hatch. But the Lord says, Truly, I say to you, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I love you. I've come for you. I've gone to prepare a place for you, and I promise to bring you to where I am. Jesus promises that if you put your faith in him, you can have the same kind of rapport and communion and relationship with God as the Father and the Son have shared for eternity. It's in the same 
way. John 15, 9. No more blame gaming. If you trust Jesus, when we talk about fall, the only kind of falling that, that you'll do if you truly trust him is falling more in love with Jesus. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and, and he's just laying out in chapter 2, it's just like, call it what it is, let's put our cards on the table. We were all rotten people, he says. He's real, that's a great way to opening second chapter of a letter to a church saying, Let's just own up to how messed up we were before we met Jesus. And then he says this. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us what? Alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgression. We were spiritually dead. Dash, it is by grace you have been saved. God is with you. God is for you. Now I want to do something. We're flipping the script a bit. I want to read God's word to us. That fateful scene, that terrible scene at Calvary. When only a few of his disciples stuck around, most of them had, had fled, but they stood at the cross. And this is what happened. I'd like you to stand with me now. We'll close with this. Luke 23 says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by the casting of lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he turned and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. He created you. He formed you in your mother's womb. He uniquely orchestrated who you are. He's been with you through all the events of your life. He's offered you grace, adoption, and new life. The Bible says he has clothed you with his righteousness. He's put his royal garments, his robe over your shoulders that you would be worthy to come into the throne room as he hung naked 
and took that shame of the cross. Oh, how he loves you. And something terrible has happened, something terrible, and people are just in denial of it. They don't want, they think it's a joke, don't they? But we're okay. There's still good news. He's come for us. Let's sing of that love and that hope.